Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalie Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my co-host is Sarus Faravar, Ars Technica's senior business editor. In this episode, we talk to Ariel Waldman, a space activist who tells us all about what life is going to be like when humans make it to space and what life is like there now. We are super lucky to have Ariel Waldman, who is a space activist as well as an author. And she has copies of her latest book to sell you if you want it. It's called What's it like in space? And it's based on lots of research and interviews with astronauts about interviews what it's over the years. Yeah. yeah, over the years about what it's really like in space. And she's going to tell us a little bit about that tonight. But she's also involved in a ton of other cool um, projects related to space. What is a space activist and how do you get to be one? <laughs> well, first you go to space. No, I haven't been to space. I have not been to space. A lot of people assume that I have a, a background in science, but I actually went to art school, got my degree in graphic design. I didn't really consider myself to be a science geek. Not that I didn't like science, it just wasn't really on my radar. A few years ago, I was watching a documentary called When We Left Earth, which is, if you guys haven't seen it, it's this great documentary about NASA during the early days and how they were trying to figure out how to send people into space. And as they were going through this documentary, they were in interviewing people from Mission Control, and they were talking about how the 60s, that everyone working at NASA didn't really know anything about spacecrafts or orbits or rocketry, and they were figuring it out as they went along. And I was watching this and saying to myself, well, I don't know anything about space exploration. I want to work at NASA. Um, that sounds amazing. Why not? Um, and so I, shortly after watching that documentary, I decided, well, why don't I email someone at NASA saying that I'm a fan of what they're doing and just offering myself as a volunteer, you know, if they ever needed an art school grad or anything like that. But serendipitously, I got a job at NASA from that email. And Really? Yeah. What was your job? <laughs> I worked for a program called CoLab, uh, and they explicitly wanted someone who had no experience at NASA because they wanted someone to bridge the gap between communities inside and outside of NASA to collaborate. So like helping amateur astronomers collaborate with astronomers at NASA or helping NASA open up their, its data more so people can do interesting stuff with it. Yeah, it was one of the very few times in my life where I've had, I guess, good timing. It was unexpected and so kind of ever since having this weird experience, weird but awesome experience, I've sort of dedicated my life towards giving other people similar experiences, making people realize that there's a lot of ways that you can contribute to space exploration as you exist right now, that you don't need to drop everything and get a PhD if you don't want to. There's actually a lot of different ways to contribute. What is a really simple way that somebody like me, like you, who has a humanities degree, who sits in front of my computer most of the day. How, how do I, as a normal human being, contribute to the benefit of humankind in terms of space exploration? Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of different ways. So I worked at NASA. I was part of this cool program. It unfortunately ended up running out of funding. And so I was kind of left with sort of like this blip on my resume of working at NASA. And I was like, well, I don't want to just 
say I worked at NASA once and did space stuff once and then like that was it and then I never did it again. I was kind of hooked and so after I left NASA I created um, spacehack.org which is a directory of ways to participate in space exploration. So the things people can do with or without a formal science background to contribute. So things like discovering galaxies or building Mars rovers or contributing to uh, general uh, space science knowledge. Um, there's a lot of different things that are uh, have different levels of involvement. So it, it was the first thing I created because I had learned about all these different ways that people could contribute to space exploration, but they were projects that were buried deep in government websites or they were just really difficult to understand. And so I sort of uh, uh, translated all of that through spacehack.org. One of the things that you did recently that I thought was super interesting was you participated in the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Human Spaceflight and produced this document, which I hope you guys have seen, which was basically it's recommendations about human spaceflight. So what did you learn from that? I mean, what's happening next with human spaceflight? What should we be doing ideally? Tell us all the things. I don't expect anyone here has actually seen it because it's a 300-page document and it's really geeky. It has awesome charts. Yeah, it has awesome charts, you know, and stuff. Like, if you're really geeky, I mean, by all means, go through it. But it really, it's 300 pages. <laughs> it was two years of work. This National Academy of Sciences report, this was a report that was a product of being a request out of Congress. Congress wanted to have an independent report that said, why are we doing human spaceflight anyway? And if we're, if we're going to continue doing it, how do we sustainably do it over many decades, given, you know, many of the government constraints. And so, yeah, I learned so much from being on this committee. It, it's one of the things that contributed to me writing a, a book about astronauts later on was because I got to have all these great experiences where I had coffee with, you know, some astronauts and got to ask them like, so what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you? But <laughs> I'll save that stuff for later. But with the report, it ended up coming out and, and the big findings in it were that firstly, that the nation, and, and by nation, I mean, you know, essentially the government, the Congress and White House and NASA needs to figure out if they want to go to Mars or not as like the ultimate horizon goal. And if yes, then they need to change how NASA works fundamentally. So right now, NASA is very much an agency that's very capabilities-based. It's very much they build things, and then they're like, OK, we could go to a lot of different places with these things that we've built. Because they try to be flexible, and I understand why. But our report actually ended up recommending that NASA take more of a pathways approach. So set a goal and have one pathway that you choose to get to that goal. If funding changes, if things come up, you know, you have off ramps, but you're building towards that goal and that's going to help you eliminate dead end technology, which is a very important thing. So if we say that, hey, we're gonna go to an asteroid and then we're gonna go to Venus and then we're gonna go to the moon and, and then we'll go to Mars, you're building a lot of different technologies that may or may not actually in the long run contribute towards you going to Mars eventually. So that's one of the things. And then finally, the final recommendation was if they decide, okay, we want to go to Mars and we're going to do a pathways-based approach, that they need to fund NASA about 2 to 5% above inflation for several years, year on, year on, year on, which is obviously a, a, big, a big deal because right now NASA's budget doesn't even keep pace with inflation. So, so is having this targeted approach toward Mars as a, as a specific goal, is that in some way sort of a return to the kind of, you know, Kennedy era we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade kind of a thing where there's like a very clear goal that like a second grader can understand. 
I mean, ideally, it should be a thing that a second grader can understand. I don't think it's quite the same as as Kennedy saying it, because one of the big differences with Mars versus the moon is Mars. And this is one of the things I learned through going through this committee. Before I was part of this human spaceflight committee, I thought, yeah, Mars is hard. I know Mars is hard, you know, but we did the moon. Mars is a bit harder. Got it. We're totally able to do this. I really underestimated just how hard Mars is. It's not just like... Isn't the trick, it's like we can get there, but it's a lot harder to come back? Well, there's a lot of different things. Landing there is Like I said, I know nothing issue. about space. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of different issues, you know, both in getting there and coming back. But really, it's not just like, oh, it's the moon times two. No, it's like really a lot harder. And because of this, this is why I say it's not really a Kennedy moment, because we were able to go to the moon. We Americans were able to go to the moon on our own. No help from, you know, international collaboration, blah, blah, blah. You can't do that with Mars. It, Mars is just too difficult. It's going to take too long. It's going to take too much money. No matter any way you cut it, no matter if it's SpaceX, no matter if it's America, no matter if it's India, China, whatever, is going to require international collaboration on an unprecedented level because of how difficult it is. That's just how it's going to work. I don't think it's a Kennedy thing so much, but I think it's actually more inspiring because because Mars is so difficult and because it requires international collaboration to make it happen, it's going to be that much more of actually a moment for humanity and in my opinion would actually make the moon look less like a humanity moment and more like a well that was a thing for you know, the U.S., great, but Mars is truly going to be So you're saying we might get the the United Federation of Planets is what you're saying. (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) That's the long, long, long long-term goal. (laughs) So it seems like we do have this long-term goal of Mars, or NASA has this long-term goal of Mars. We also know Elon Musk has that goal, you know, privately, personally. But NASA's next human spaceflight project is this weird asteroid thing, capturing an asteroid in a bag. How does that get us to Mars. Wait, what? and what is that? Uh, yeah, so you're talking about the asteroid redirect mission, also known as ARM. And ARM is kind of what you said. It spurred out of this thing. Some of you might remember Obama a few years ago was tried to do the sort of Kennedy moment thing, which every president tries to do. And he was like, we're going to go to an asteroid and then we're going to go to Mars. And everyone was like, great, awesome. We're going to go to an asteroid in its native orbit, like out somewhere in the middle of space. And that's going to be cool. And, you know, Bruce Willis, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, like, as I said, NASA's budget isn't even keeping pace with inflation. So NASA has to somehow, they're put in an awkward situation where they can't really go against the White House. So they sort of have to figure out how do we do what the president said, but with our limited budget. And so it got turned into this thing called ARM, which is taking like a small asteroid and redirecting it robotically to cislunar space, which is essentially more or less the orbit of the moon. Then wait, wait, where are they going to get the asteroid? I that uh, I think they've got like a couple of targets they're looking at, but I don't I don't think they've finalized. But they're not in the asteroid knowledge. belt. I could be wrong. They're not um, in the asteroid belt. No, they're not going far out to my to my knowledge. Okay. So it's, and it's going to be small. And the problem with asteroids, especially small ones, is that you don't know very well with a lot of them if it's one big piece or just a bunch of rubble floating together. Okay. But anyway, so they're, let's imagine that it's just one big piece. They're going to capture it in like a garbage bag around the moon. Wait, really? Yes. It's like, if you look at like the concepts for it, it's like a big black garbage bag like thing. Made of what? 
That I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so th that's the concept, <laughs> capture it in a bag. And then, and then once it's captured in this sort of near moon space, then they're sending up astronauts to go to it, open up the garbage bag, chip off a little piece of it, and then bring it back. And hey, we went to an asteroid. So Wait, if all they're doing yeah. is chipping off a piece, why do they need to put it in a bag? Seems weird. Just to keep it safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's so I will say, you know, amongst people uh, at NASA and outside of NASA, people who have the ability to speak freely, it's not a very popular mission um, because it's not really generating a lot of technologies that will be used to Mars. It's generating some, not none. But it's also generating some technologies that will only be used for that mission and no other mission at all. So that's not very helpful. And then the other thing is, if they're not successful in redirecting an asteroid and capturing it, then they kind of have like this spacecraft garbage bag thing in cislunar orbit. And the astronauts will dock with nothing. Um, and that's what I had been told would happen. Like if they end up not being successful, then well, well, we'll just send up astronauts and they'll just dock with the spacecraft. Like, I don't know, it has so many issues and it's not a very popular mission. Um, so some people, are hopeful that with a new administration that perhaps this mission will get axed. I have no idea if that will happen or not. I know that it, when you're speaking internationally, all the other countries that are involved in space exploration are looking to the moon. And NASA's current plan is, well, since we'll be in cislunar orbit, we'll be able to lead all of them through communications around the moon. And we don't need to be on the moon. They can do that. We already did that. That's sort of the current narrative. But, you know, these sorts of things change with every administration. So when I first got my job at NASA, Bush was still uh, uh, president. And uh, the narrative at that time was, we're going back to the moon, but not just for a nightcap. We're going to stay. And that was the whole, like, yeah, that's totally the narrative. So you can expect, again, with the administration change, even if the mission doesn't change, sort of the narrative does. Has anybody in this room been to space? No? I don't? OK. Just sure, wanted to be sure. Yeah. Really? They, should all, should, they should have all cheered. So based on what you know and what what you've learned and what you've studied, you know, as somebody like myself who was raised on science fiction, what do you feel like is the best way to understand what the limitations and actual realities are? Like, I'm not talking about Star Trek, but I'm talking about like, is there a way to understand in either a movie or a TV show or a book or, or something that you feel like represents in an accurate way or a mostly accurate way the limitations of what life in space is practically like? There's the default, you know, Martian, gravity, but to going more sort of sci-fi level, like properly, like not trying to map exactly to reality, but show some interesting things. Like I, I am a fan of The Expanse. Yay. Uh, yeah. And it's because it tries to figure out those things about living in space that we don't yet know ourselves, but we have an idea about. So like what? So, like, in The Expanse, like, uh, if you watch, like, the TV series, there was this great scene where he's pouring a drink, and the drink, as it pours, instead of going directly down, he's on Ceres, the big asteroid in the asteroid belt, and as he pours this drink, it goes sort of, like, diagonal into the cup. So he knows already to pour the drink a little bit away from the cup so that it'll diagonally hit it. So that's actually tapping into uh, the actual physics of, of what The Expanse is saying. So in The Expanse, they are saying that people live underground on Ceres, and they've spun this huge asteroid, almost planet-like thing up so fast that people are experiencing artificial gravity. And part of that is through actually just speeding it up, and some of it's also the dynamics of Ceres itself. And so 
while it's not accurate that you would see this weird diagonal line on the small on that small of a scale you would have that effect on a very tiny scale so they sort of like exaggerated it a bit that was accurate. So stuff like that, like I love because they're actually trying to figure out like approximately what would it be like to be inside an asteroid that sped up to have artificial gravity. And then just gravity in general with the expanse is really cool because you have people who have grown up in different gravity wells, some on Mars, some in the asteroid belt. And because of this, gravity gets used as a plot device to sort of torture people or do other things. So if you're someone who grew up in a place with, with less gravity in the expanse, you know, they can bring you back to Earth and like expose you to Earth gravity and it's like crushing, you know, to you, you know, and, and using that as like a plot device for how to actually um, interact with people, I think is really cool. So we were talking before about sending humans to space, but actually a lot of the really cool exploration in space is actually being done by robots. And, you know, we have Juno right now, which is hopefully taking more pictures even as we speak. And we have robots on Mars, yeah, hopefully. Um, and, you know, we did have that unfortunate uh, moment in Mars just a couple days ago. But what do you think about that? Do you think that, that we should be focusing more on these awesome robots? Or should we be, you know, trying to get people out there too? Like, what's the balance for you? What's, you know, where, where do you really think we should head with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely an advocate of both human and robotic and, and humans working with robots. But in terms of obviously anything beyond Mars, then absolutely. <laughs> We're not, you know, Mar Mars is still TBD for humans anyway. But, uh, you know, I'm a big space probe fan. And I think continuing to send stuff out is, is ex obviously extremely important. But it's also, I'm, I'm slowly over the last few years, slowly but surely getting a little depressed because so we had... We had a spacecraft at Mercury, no more. The US had a spacecraft at Venus, no more. There's a Japanese spacecraft sort of like barely entering uh, Venus orbit right now. We had New Horizons go to Pluto. It's going to continue doing awesome stuff, which I'm really looking forward to. But all of these outer planets that we really only got these flybys of from like the Voyager spacecraft, Uranus, and you know, all of the outer bodies in the solar system, they're kind of lonely. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of not, not cool. So, you know, there are concepts for things like that, but even, uh, you know, Cassini, which is at Saturn, which has been like an amazing spacecraft, pretty much any beautiful image you've seen of Saturn or Saturn's moons has been produced by Cassini over the last 10 plus years, and it's going to die in less than a year now, and that's going to be sad. So people have slowly but surely been seeing this like gap where one by one, these spacecrafts that were dedicated to these planets are going, and Juno even isn't going, to, that's at Jupiter, not going to last very long. So, you know, there's some that are in the works. There's a, a Europa mission that's in the works. It's not that there will be nothing, but there's nothing in the pipeline. I don't like saying this for anything else, but with spacecraft, uh, we do have a pipeline problem, and we don't have a lot of uh, new spacecrafts up and coming. And I think it's it's really troubling, and I think certainly, ag again, with the outer planets, there's a lot we haven't explored that we've only really seen on flyby missions. From what I've understood, there's a lot of new and cheap and small, like nanosats, cubesats, things like that, that university students and even high school students are working on. Uh, around the world. Yep. Are those useful? Do they produce good science? Like, can a CubeSat be sent 
to Jupiter? Like, can they go that far? So maybe not on the order of Jupiter just yet, but uh, so people are working on things like that. So the things are tiny, right? Yeah. So so a CubeSat is like a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter sort of standard satellite. And if you put a few of them together, it's like a loaf of bread or something. So they're useful. However, the vast, vast, vast majority of them do not have any propulsion systems whatsoever. So you kind of send them up, they float around, probably deorbit, and then they're done. Um, Is that a fancy way of saying crash? No, it's burn up. It's, it burn up. Yeah, they, yeah, they're so tiny that they burn up into nothing. And so there have been a few tests of doing CubeSats with propulsion systems. There are also new startups that have been founded specifically to try and create better propulsion systems for small spacecrafts to do exactly that. Um, and then there are uh, planned missions where I believe uh, CubeSat-sized spacecrafts are going to Mars, sort of like tagging along a larger spacecraft. Up and coming, totally exciting area. In terms of technology engineering testing, though, we're still trying to see, like, can we do a successful one as far out as Mars? And we haven't we haven't been able to say that. That said, there's been, like, really cool projects that I've seen people do that were non-propelled things. So one of my favorite space probes that uh, very few people know about, I sound like such a, a space hipster right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, no, it's a spacecraft called ArtSat-2. And Artsat- very catchy. ArtSat-2 was generated out of University of Tokyo um, in collaboration with an art school. And it was a 3D printed sculpture aboard a larger spacecraft sort of rocket that went into deep space. And so it's the first, you know, piece of like actual art, like sculpture art that was sent into deep space. But then they put on board some stuff on it that essentially made it so that as the spacecraft experienced space and experienced the environment of space, it would actually generate poetry based on its experiences and beam it back to Earth. Like... Cool. Yeah, this is what I mean. Like, now you guys can be space hipsters, too. Like, it's really, this is a really cool. So it, Is the poetry any good? I, I didn't look it up. I imagine it's all in Japanese, but it, it went through the University of Tokyo, so I'm sure we could, could ask them for it. But it was, it was really cool. So it's no longer functioning. It was a very, you know, small sort of project that they did. But I love this idea of, like, this 3D printed sculpture out there that's sending back poetry about, you know, its experience in space. And so, yeah, it's the, kind of the first, like, proper art piece in, in deep space that was sent out there. It's really cool. I know that it's really cool. <laughs> so I know that you've looked at a lot of pretty futuristic projects from NASA and from other groups. So what? tell us some more stuff that you've seen that you think is really promising that are going to take us into space or hopefully take us into space. Because I know you've worked with NIAC, which mm-hmm. is kind of like NASA's version of DARPA. And I still can't remember what NIAC stands for. So. so so NIAC is NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. It's not quite... DARPA, but it does fund the more sci-fi, futuristic, out-there stuff. It's funded through NASA, but the projects are independent, so you don't have to work at NASA to apply to it, and also uh, you get to actually keep your IP. So these are things that NASA thinks are technologies or research that could really transform future space missions 10, 20 years down the line. Things that you could do credible research for today, but may turn out that the technology isn't viable. So so like warp drive or? So not warp drive because that's not not credible so so things that come on Annalise. The, the, <laughs> two, and i know that two big rules with NIAC are things that don't break physics 
and rule number one <laughs> and things that don't have unrealistic budget goals now if you want a large budget fair enough but if you're like yeah i can do this if i have three trillion dollars <laughs> i was like no that you're on warp drive level like no so they fund things like one that i love is called the comet hitchhiker which is a project that at first i was like well what's interesting about comet hitchhiker we had a probe rosetta at a comet already um, but this is actually an idea to send a probe to a, a comet have it harpoon into the comet and then reel out a huge, incredibly, incredibly long tether and have it harvest the kinetic energy of that comet to be able to explore the solar system twice as fast. So it's kind of like using a comet as a propulsion system to go really fast. So it could go to Pluto in like five years instead of like 10 years. Whoa. Wait, so does it take control of the comet or it just grabs the comet's energy just and hitchhikes, then, it and then like. it hitch, kind of? Yeah, it doesn't take control of the comet. But there, so there is another NIAC project that just got funded this year, I think, from the Maiden Space folks, the people who did the 3D printer on the International Space Station. And they have a concept to actually have like analog computers attached to asteroids and then be able to steer the asteroids themselves. And so instead of using, you know, outside sort of spacecrafts or something, it would sort of turn the asteroid into kind of like a self-driving car, which can be both terrifying and, and cool, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> so with these NIAC things, so yeah, they're open to anyone to apply to every year. It's a cool program. But in terms of things that I want to see, yeah, I mean, certainly outer planet stuff. I'm also like a super deep space geek like I love learning obviously more about galaxies dark matter the cosmic background uh, radiation from the big bang seeing more stuff like that would be cool but in terms of what is in the pipeline that I know of the Europa mission I'm looking forward to I think there's a lot of cool stuff they could do that's probably the one I'm most excited for yeah so the Europa mission is going to be a robotic mission to explore the seas of Europa is that right no, so so there's no, <laughs> damn it, there, there's no like open seas, like tit Titan has open seas, but so Europa, uh, if you don't know, is a, a moon of uh, Jupiter, has an icy shell, there is believed to be a, a full ocean beneath many, many, you know, a, a huge ice sheet that would be near impossible to drill through because it's so big and they've just discovered that it has plumes much like the moon Enceladus does as well and because it has all this interesting activity on the surface that you can see you can see sort of like these orange stripes along it they think there might be interesting stuff there and may you know maybe even life the problem, of course, with the Europa mission that's up and coming is because, you know, science takes time. It's not going to be able to necessarily, like, go there and say, yep, we found life. It's totally there. Like, we have this problem of, you know, we want to find life um, in uh, on moons or, uh, or evidence of life that used to be on Mars. But because we don't know what it could be, we can't design the instruments for it. And of course, like the impatient person in me is like, just design some, just pick one thing and look for that, like just something. And that, yeah, it doesn't necessarily work like that. So the Europa mission, which would be in the 2020s, would be really exciting. It would be able to discover more about if it has the right environment to support life. But I don't think you would be hearing like, yep, yeah, we totally found fish. Like, <laughs> they're totally there. <laughs> like, um, I'm, I'm not disappointed yet. about not going in the oceans. I, I saw some, 
early concept designs that showed going into the ocean. And yeah. it sounds like maybe now we could sample the plumes or something like yes. that. So that would be our hope would be to get yes. something liquid from those. Yeah. So that's the hope. So it's it's baby steps. You know, personally, I'm I like both Europa and Enceladus. Uh, Enceladus being another icy moon, but it's at Saturn. But the difference is, is that with Enceladus, Cassini did sample around its plumes. And so we actually know with Enceladus that it does have the right chemistry that could support life. We don't even know what's coming out of Europa right now. And so this mission in the 2020s would be able to figure that out. But we already have a moon where we've already done that sort of baby step. We don't have a spacecraft that's being designed to go there right now, uh, which is unfortunate. But the reason we're going to Europa, you know, a big reason is because there's a person in Congress who is a really huge fan of Europa, and he's been, like, pushing it through a lot. Who is that? That's a thing. Oh, God. What's I'm going to blank on his name. He took over after, oh, Colbertson. Uh, Colbertson? Yeah, Colbertson. He's a Europa fanboy, but he's a double-edged sword. And this is where, like, it comes, like, where it's really good that I'm independent because I can speak freely about this. He pushes Europa forward. He has put, you know, he has really tried to get funds going on that and getting that mission going. And that's really great. And I applaud him for that. However, he is also the person in Congress, pretty much the sole person in Congress, that also upholds the ban on NASA from collaborating with China. And so this is the same person who is saying, yeah, Europa, but in turn saying, you're not allowed to collaborate with China. Well, only two nations right now can get into space, and we're not one of them, and we can't collaborate with the other one. <laughs> so it's kind of an issue, and I, I think it's kind of absurd. It's, it's definitely politics and using NASA just as a representative for, you know, well, we don't like you very much, so we'll take NASA away from you. And I don't like NASA really being put in that position, and NASA doesn't like being put in that position. So yeah, the, these are sort of the politics of space, and I will say, you know, coming in from this from all the way from art school into you know NASA and, and now where I am like learning awesome stuff about science has been great but the thing that has taken me the longest to learn has been all of these politics of knowing like oh well if you support this congressperson who is a big fan of Europa you're also supporting him continuing to you know keep NASA from this collaborating. It's like the boring part of space. Yeah it's, it's boring but it's it's important to sort of know these things because otherwise you go in blindly and you don't really know what's driving the decisions that are being made in space so I mean I think this is one of the reasons why people have so many hopes for a private space industry and why SpaceX gets people excited I mean also because of course there's been the you know successful launches and some <coughs> successful landings do you think that that's going to be a solution that the private space industry is going to be able to kind of step up and maybe explore Enceladus instead of Europa? <laughs> I always love when uh, it's pronounced like Enceladus. Enceladus, but like Enceladus, like I love it because it's, it's like enchilada. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I don't say it out the loud whole that enceladus. often. Yeah, the whole Enceladus. The whole Enceladus. It's got a plume. It's yeah. got a couple of plumes. It's got everything. <laughs> Just <laughs> got a gas giant right next door. Sprinkle some cheese on it. It'll be tasty. I do think private industry will solve some of these factors, but perhaps not all. So the government, even though, you know, even though you're a private company, you're doing your own space stuff. There's stuff I'm not going to get into, but called ITAR regulations, which means the government is even when you're doing your private space business, you still can't collaborate with certain countries or or you're limited so much that you, you might as well just not. Private industry, I think, is awesome, um, certainly for being able to send stuff into space without having to go through this entire 
process that the government often puts you through of like, well, does it align with NASA's mission? No, well, then I guess we're not doing it. So it's like if, for instance, Venus is not on the roadmap for NASA and you want to send something to Venus, then you're a little bit out of luck in terms of working with the U.S. government. But private industry, if you've got the cash, you can do it. And so, you know, not uh, that's not going to apply to everyone, but it's certainly going to open up more things. And I think that's a really positive thing. So where are we going to find life in the solar system other than on Earth? What do you think? Yeah, I, it, well, so in the solar system, certainly that brings you back to the whole Europa Enceladus thing. So You're really gunning for those fish, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw Europa Report. You guys saw that movie, right? The giant glowing octopus thing? Watch out. You just... <laughs> Also, all, I mean, the other thing is I'm going to mention, the other thing I'm going to mention is, as we learned from 2010, all the worlds are ours except Europa. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Again, I mean, this comes back to some of the stuff that I was saying where we actually have a lot more data and information about Enceladus, but all the missions are lined up to go to Europa. And so some of this is because the beautiful images that we see of Europa uh, typically come from the Galileo spacecraft, which was really active in the 90s. These things take time, and so people see these beautiful images of Europa. We get a little bit more information about, like, oh, it's this icy world, and it's got interesting colors on it. Like, maybe it's, like, active with life. So people start building missions towards that, like, or start at least politically getting people in line to go to Europa. But, you know, about 10 years ago, Cassini goes to Saturn, sees Enceladus, actually is able to sort of sample it, get more information about it. And so now we're in this weird thing where we actually know more about Enceladus, know that we can state right now, based on just evidence, that it it has an environment to support life, and we could actually go to the next step. We don't really have a lot of that information about Europa, but it's been in the pipeline for so long, so we're going there. The good news is is that, I mean, they're both freaking awesome icy (laughs) moons, so like... I'm just being whiny. (laughs) Uh, Space hipster. (laughs) Yeah, space hipster. Whiny space hipster. So it's like, yeah, I'm a bit of a a fan of Enceladus just because we do have more data on it. And I think right now, based on that, we can say it's more likely. But eventually we'll get, you know, we'll reach, you know, parity with both of them and, and see. But the interesting thing is, you know, that we are finding more and more celestial bodies in our solar system that have water on them or water inside them, which is usually the case. And that obviously reaches the prospect of could, you know, extreme life be there. The cool thing about, I guess, Enceladus is that if Enceladus were to have life on it, because Saturn is that much farther out than Jupiter, it is uh, something like a six-time higher likelihood that if we were to find life on Enceladus, that it is actually a properly second genesis of life, that it has it didn't interact with Earth life whatsoever, and thus we would actually say life began completely separately on two different places. Now, if we found life on Europa, which is Jupiter, and you know we've got the asteroid belt passing between us and, and Jupiter, there is a possibility, it'd still be cool, but there's a possibility that the life that we find on Europa could have interacted with anything on Earth over a very long period of time. And so maybe it was still part of the life that came from Earth, vice versa, we don't know. 
because asteroids are whirling around yeah. and could have smashed into the earth and then later yes. or smashed into yeah. so yeah um, you've got this asteroid belt that's like really messy that's between you know mars and jupiter and it's interacting with earth a lot it's interacting with jupiter a lot it's interacting with mars a lot so if we found life on europa it's possible that it could have actually come from earth in some way it's not it's not science fiction to say that it could have whereas something if we were to find life at saturn or beyond i should say then it would really it would be hard to prove that it was anything that interacted with earth at any period Wow, that's that's super interesting. Okay, let's take questions from you guys now. If you combine self-driving asteroids with private space industry, how do you regulate that? So this has definitely come up and it's something, you know, so uh, these projects get funded through NIAC and some of them really, because they are kind of on the edge of, of science fiction, they bring up kind of these scary ideas that perhaps we haven't considered yet that we should, which is exciting to me because I would rather people try and discuss and figure it out um, ahead of time than when it is actually upon us. The best thing I can say is that uh, David Brin, who's a a science fiction author, um, I think has covered at least similar topics in this vein. What happens with these NIAC projects is the first round of NIAC projects, they get funded at like $100,000 over nine months. And then they can use that time to tinker their concept and say, oh, this was a terrible idea. (laughs) We should really, like, if we're going to be doing like these asteroids and and everything, maybe we should like pivot and do something less terrifying with it. And, And then they can apply for a second round of funding. So this is nothing that is, you know, being actually built and deployed today, but it's a concept that people haven't thought about. And I think the interesting part of it is probably just going to be in the mechanics of it, but maybe not the application. So the the concept is to have analog computers as sort of these long-term spacecrafts that can be able to do a lot of interesting work for us out in space. And so even if it wasn't propelling spacecrafts, doing like automaton type of computing in space, I think is probably more of the meat of the concept. So tell us about your current projects. So because I'm independent, I work on a lot of different things year round. The upcoming thing actually is Science Hack Day is it's a weekend event that gets scientists, designers, developers, and all different types of people together to see what they can prototype in 24 consecutive hours with science. It's a lot of fun. Uh, We don't give people challenges. It's kind of openly chaotic on purpose. And the mission is really just to get excited and make things with science. So I organize the event here in San Francisco. I also help people around the world uh, organize Science Hack Day. By the end of this year, there will be Science Hack Days in 25 different countries, which is exciting. And so that's my my up and coming thing. One project I'm working on, though, I don't have final confirmation on. I'm crossing my fingers as I'm trying to work towards going to Antarctica to be able to actually image a lot of the microbial life under the ice. And since we've been talking so much about Europa and Enceladus, you can see why I have an interest in this, because by trying to figure out what life is like in extreme environments here on Earth, we might have a better idea of like what to look for with spacecrafts one day. And so I'm wanting to go there because a lot of biologists get sent down to Antarctica and they sequence the DNA of all these interesting little microbes, um, but they don't really get tasked with taking images or videos of what they look like. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So, Is the government and NASA, are they impressed by Elon Musk or do they think he's just a joke, basically? His, his plan to go to Mars. Yeah. In other words, what's their reaction? I don't have my finger on the pulse of necessarily like NASA's like direct reaction to the most recent thing. I w- will say generally when it comes to space, whether it's me or, or a lot of people at NASA, you go off of what people have built. And if they haven't built anything, then 
you can be extremely, extremely skeptical. But Elon Musk and SpaceX, you know, they've built successful rockets. They've been servicing the International Space Station. So they know he's not a joke and they want to work with him. You know, that's the truth. When it comes to his most recent plan to have a 42 engine massive rocket, when there's only been a five engine rocket ever built in the history of humanity, I did ask some NASA colleagues what they thought about it. I also asked uh, some people who had worked on Apollo what they thought about it. And they were like, great if he can do it. Like, you know, like, by all means, please do that. My reaction is that while I am supportive of him essentially creating pipelines and pathways for people to plug into. He knows all of the things that he's leaving vague. He knows that he didn't really talk about how they would actually land on Mars. He knows that he didn't really say that much about radiation other than, yeah, it's kind of a thing, but it'll get, you know, there's all these things. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah. So I think because he is someone who has built successful things and they expect that he will continue to do so, I don't think they take him as a joke, but I think... They kind of know, I think everyone in the space industry knows that so much of it is like flag, this alpha male sort of flag planting. So it's like, you know, (laughs) it really is, you know, I mean, and, and whether it comes from a company that can actually produce results or a company that can't produce results, so much of it is saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're totally the first startup that's going to be doing tourist visits to the moon and like just like get out in front of it and well we were the first ones who said it like let's forget about like if we actually deliver or not you know with, with Elon Musk's rocket thing I, I think you know I'm encouraged that he's going to give it a solid try and I think I can't cr- criticize him too much because ultimately SpaceX is not a science company they are an engineering company they engineer rockets they have a plan to engineer the biggest best rocket you've ever seen so I mean that makes sense like why would they not say that they're going to do that but there's a lot of other things involved in sending humans into space. Elon Musk knows that and he he knows when he's being vague. But this is also the reality with government stuff too. The government is like, we're on this journey to Mars and we're totally getting there and we're doing this asteroid redirect mission and then we'll just jump from that to Mars and that totally makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't totally make sense. You know, it, people but they have are the garbage bag thing totally down. So that's going to be... <laughs> That's totally, that's, that's set. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I'm on the side of being, you know, optimistic, but, but skeptical for both government and industry. And I'm skeptical of anyone who fully believes industry and who fully believes the government. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Why not send people directly to the outer planet? Are you volunteering? Sure. Okay. Again, we have a volunteer as well. We have a volunteer yeah. to go to the outer uh, planet. So this is a great question, because it's a question I used to have. One of the reasons is that when talking about radiation safety, for instance, is that there is a currently acceptable level of risk by the government of how much radiation risk you can have based on how much it increases your chance of getting cancer. You can raise that risk level. That's a thing you can do. But even in doing so, there's sort of an upper limit of what you can endure with how things currently are. So that limit is around 600 days. Yeah, sure. If you're talking like one-way mission, you die and then you just orbit Neptune forever. Fair enough. Um, maybe, maybe you'll probably die before you reach Neptune. That's the unfortunate thing. But so radiation is one consideration for why we don't talk about goals farther than Mars, because even Mars right now is pushing it in terms of trying to figure it out. Also, radiation levels for different genders and different ages are different. Um, that also factors into it. Another reason is that, so an interesting thing, for instance, actually to go back to Elon Musk's uh, recent video announcement of like, we're going to Mars, huge rocket. The video 
very interestingly to me, cuts out right as they land on Mars and they look out, the door opens and the astronauts are in their suits, they look out the door and then it cuts and it goes black and that's it. You don't see them stepping out because you will not be able to walk when you land on Mars because you've been in space for so long. So you also have, you know, gravity issues and, and things like that. So I'm not saying no, never, because you know the way space typically works is that you, you have breakthroughs. So unlike a lot of things with biology, where you have sort of an exponential thing where technology gets smaller and smaller, we're able to sequence things faster and faster. Space industry is more like we had the breakthrough of rockets, and we've been optimizing those rockets a ton, but we're using the same technology. And until a breakthrough happens, then we're kind of stuck just optimizing everything as much as we can. When a breakthrough in technology happens, obviously very much changes the space industry well, and everything. We still need that warp drive. But yeah, still need the warp drive. But I think that's one of the things that people often don't fully comprehend about space is that it's not this exponential progress bar, that it's actually something that we kind of wait around for a breakthrough to happen that we didn't see coming, and then that changes the whole game. So the reason why people don't talk about going to the outer planets is because Mars, when you look at both radiation and what the human body can endure in terms of time and space, based on current and foreseeable technologies, Mars is really the limit. And so unless something changes, that's kind of how it is. The other reason is going to the outer planets, then you're just going to be orbiting. There's nothing to land on. And humans have this whole thing about walking around like on things. So <laughs> I mean, usually, maybe that even will change, but who knows? You could land on the moons <laughs> in Celadus. No, but yeah, I, I, I yeah. wanted to know. I was like, why? It's like, if we're talking about like the future of humanity, like why aren't we going to Jupiter and seeing yeah. how awesome it is? I want that. And yeah, it's based on current and foreseeable technologies, radiation risk, and, and what we can put humans through, just even trying to make Mars work is extremely, extremely difficult. And I think a lot of times when we talk about goals, we're talking about things that we don't want just to be stunts in space. So it's like we could go to Jupiter or we could go to Venus, see it, cool, we checked it out, some people got to see it, we come back, but it's not really this thing to build off on. There's not a reason to build off of Neptune and, or build like a constellation around Neptune that's not really serving, I guess, long-term purposes. Whereas building things on Mars, people have different reasons why it would be important. But even though they would disagree, people see a lot of reasons for why it might be useful. So the question is, are there any multi-generational missions that you know about? Missions where you'd have many generations of people to get to a distant location? Yes and no, depending on how you cut it. I mean, in a way, you know, Voyager has seen a few generations go through. Uh, the, the people who worked on Voyager, many of them are gone. Some of them are still around, but that's something that ended up being that way. And it's continuing to still work for even a little while longer. So even even over the next few years, you might have another generation come in. Obviously, I don't think it was planned that way. It's great when it works out that way. More things that were planned sort of from the get-go to be multi-generational, there's not anything specific I can think of in terms of like an actual thing that has been built. That said, there's a cool organization called the 100-Year Starship, which originally started from a collaboration from DARPA and NASA. And the whole idea with the 100-Year Starship is not to have an organization that's going to build the starship, but actually have an organization that could last for 100 years to wait around and be at essentially the right moment and to have 
had people thinking about it for long enough that when this breakthrough technology happens, which they sort of were thinking like maybe in the next hundred years would happen, there'd be an organization already set up to support it and make it happen. So the idea was in a hundred years, someone's going to be able to build, yeah, some breakthrough technology to allow us to have something that would actually go to a, another star. They said, we don't know where it's coming from. We can't predict what it will be, but we can build an organization that will be a multi-generational organization to actually support that effort. So it started as a DARPA and NASA collaboration. It has since moved to being, I believe, a nonprofit organization run by uh, Mae Jemison, who's one of the earlier astronauts. And so she runs that organization. And so, you know, the test with, with that organization is obviously to see, do they stand the test of time? Do they actually have an organization that lasts for 100 years? This all got started like 2010, 2011. So <laughs> they've got a ways to go. Yeah, but I like at least the, the idea of sort of admitting that they can't yet get to the point where you know they're going to be realistically building something like that but they can at least build social constructs around it yeah and then in terms of spacecrafts being multi-generational at least i think that would have to come out of private industry and not nasa because nasa being tied to the government government's never going to tie off oh we have to we have to pay staff for you know 50 years 60 years 70 years 100 years like no that's not Unfortunately, I, I wish I could dream a bit more, but no, that won't happen, uh, at least to my knowledge. Thanks so much for being here. That was fantastic. Yeah.